0: For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we open our Bibles together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank thank you so much that we have your word, that we have our own personal copies of decent translations of the original languages, And recognize that throughout history that has been so rare for most believers. And yet, though we have so much available to us electronically, we have it available to us in print, yet today we live in a world that ignores and denies your word uh, more than just about any time in history. And yet we have so much available to us. Father, we pray that we may not take your word for granted that we may not uh, get bored uh, with our study, our learning about you, for it is the one reason that we are saved is to serve you, to come to know you, to grow and mature as believers, that you might be glorified. So, Father, today as we continue our study in this tremendous epistle to the Ephesians, we pray that you would help us to understand some of the things uh, that are taught in the scripture about how we come to understand the gospel and the importance of our response to the gospel. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians chapter four, and we are studying in Ephesians. 418. We are studying the last phrase in Ephesians 418 this morning, and it's the way it's been used and abused in terms of church history. The last phrase refers to and is translated in many versions as the blindness of their heart. And over the course of history, in different translations, in different languages, it's been translated that way And it's not a textual problem. A textual problem was when there's a copyist error that has entered in. It is a lexical problem. That means it's an understanding of the word itself and how it has been used and how it has been translated. And this has led to some problems and some misunderstandings. So we have to uh, clarify, clarify this. The three verses we have been focusing on are verses 17 to 19. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Now, all of that is giving a a tremendous description of the fact that there is to be a difference in how the believer thinks and lives as opposed to the unbeliever. You have to be careful with statements like that because it's real easy to slip into some form of legalism. When I was first out of seminary looking for a pastorate, it seems like the Lord always had me learn a few things by, by, by the negatives. So I was uh, had an opportunity to candidate for a church over in Louisiana. And for those of you who don't know, in South Louisiana, in the Cajun country, it's, things are a little bit different. It's like a world all unto its own. And this church was in Opelousas, Louisiana. And so I went over there to... Uh, A candidate, and I had to meet with the deacons. And when I met with the deacons, the first question they asked me was, "What was my philosophy of ministry?" So I explained the you know I focus on the word teaching the word that it is God, the Holy Spirit, plus the word of God that transforms lives. And they were all fine with that at a superficial level. And then they asked me if I would preach against smoking, drinking, and dancing. <laughs> that took about an hour and a half to two-hour discussion. We never got to the third or fourth fourth question. And the reason they wanted that as a hallmark of the ministry of the church was because so many people were getting saved out of a Roman Catholic background where there was just this spirit of licentiousness and that you could just uh, do anything and and uh, it would be okay with God. And so they wanted to, to not do anything that the Roman Catholics did, and they... Um, uh, didn 't want to do things or they they wanted to avoid things that the Roman Catholics did, so since they were always involved in partying and I guess dancing and drinking and smoking they didn't want they wanted that to be preached against I came back because when you're when you 're young and you 're ready to go serve the Lord, you often pray lord i 'm ready i 'll just go anywhere you send me and my prayer on my way back, driving back from Louisiana, was, Lord, please don't send me to Cajun country. And I literally got out of the car, because there's a roadside, you know, that, that, that road, roadside uh, uh, rest area there on um, I-10 as you come back into Texas. I got out of the ground and kissed the ground of Texas that I was so glad to be, to be home. Uh, but um, a couple of weeks later, I got a call, and the deacons decided that I probably was not the right person for their church. So I was glad that the Lord was leading all of us in the same direction. But that's a problem when you look at a passage like this: is that you think, "Well, I can't live my life like the rest of the Gentiles do." That's uh, you've got to understand the entire context of what. What this is talking about, which is what we have, uh, what we have gone through, and then next time we'll get to the 19th uh, verse, which talks about what they are doing within their in terms of their uh, lifestyle. That is the product of their uh, darkened understanding and the problems with their soul. And today, what I want to focus on is this phrase: the blindness of their heart. So we've gone through this in detail showing that uh, this is descriptive of the thinking of Gentiles. I think it's important to understand this is descriptive. It's not necessarily setting up a precise cause and effect order of these things as much as it is describing the root problem. And the root problem is spiritual death, being alienated uh, from the life of God, and the result of that is that they are um, their understanding is darkened, and that's that is what's led to the last phrase of verse 17, which is the futility of of their mind. And then it con- it ends the sentence with with because of the blindness of their heart. So there there is a grammatical structure here that's important to note that the Gentiles were living. In the futility of their thinking. That means that they, their minds were in, impacted by sin. And because of sin, every area of our being is corrupted. That's what is known as the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity does not mean we're as bad as we can be. It means that every area, the totality of our being, our body and soul... Everything is corrupted by sin, and it doesn't mean we are unable to do anything in the direction of God, including exercising some uh, positive volition to God. Just saying, Lord, I, I, I understand that you're there. I, I believe there must be a God. Please reveal yourself to me. That that is uh, not the term I use is non meritorious. There's no merit to that, and God will respond in grace to providing for you. But they, we live, Gentiles, unsaved Gentiles, live in the emptiness of their thinking. It is not a th- way of thought that is, de- where the, as God designed the brain and the mind, it is not a way of thinking that is going to achieve what God intended for man. So we see, we ask the question then, why is their thinking futile? It's because their understanding is darkened. Why is their understanding darkened? It is because they are alienated from the life of God. Why are they alienated from the life of God? It's because of the ignorance that is within them. And why are the ignorant? Because of, and it should be translated, the stubbornness of their heart. And the word that we see here is the Greek word porosis. And porosis was frequently understood in the history of biblical translation uh, to relate to uh, blindness. And so this was uh, one of the primary ways in which this word had been translated. But the word itself, the word porosis, conveys the idea of a callous, as one writer puts it, a callus uh, serves as uh, mortar to reunite the surfaces of fractured bones, and that this will harden. So you see, that's that's the main idea here, and can and has the idea of a petrification uh, that takes place, but. And when the scripture was translated into Latin, then uh, it, the Latin picked up the idea that it had to do with the uh, hardening of the eyes, uh, a dullness or blindness uh, that would that would come in, and so uh, the idea is that man then was blind as opposed to being hardened. Now the difference is if you're blind if that's a constitutional defect as a result of sin, then there's nothing that you did about that, and there's no personal responsibility in that I can't see anything of the gospel because I'm totally unable to. That's called the doctrine of the inability of man as opposed to our total inability as opposed to total depravity. So these are the uh, the two issues that we're going to be looking at. And so on the one hand, you have those who uh, take this blindness as a constitutional defect. So they say, well, the only way that their eyes can be opened is God has to first open their eyes and then gives them faith. And then when he gives them faith, then they are regenerated. So faith, I mean, uh, excuse me, first God regenerates them and then gives them faith so that regeneration precedes faith because a dead man can't do anything. So God has to make them alive before they can believe, before they can see, and we're going to see what some of the problems are with that. In Acts 26, 17, and 18, as Paul is describing uh, the purpose for which God called him, he says, I will deliver... He said, God, what God said to Paul was, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes. So Paul's mission was to open their eyes. He is not ascribing that to an irresistible grace. He is ascribing that to Paul's teaching of the word, his proclamation of the gospel and teaching of scripture. Paul would, through the teaching of the word, open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And so this is the issue. So the lexical problem that I'm uh, highlighting here is this meaning of the word uh, porosis for stubbornness or blindness. A very well-known 19th century A scholar by the name of uh, Armitage Robinson uh, wrote a commentary on Ephesians. And I heard many professors when I was in seminary say that this is the best commentary on the Greek text. And yet when he came to this word, he said in Ephesians 4.18, the word parosis has been uniformly interpreted as blindness in the Latin, the Syriac, and the Armenian versions, and with perhaps but one exception. In the Geneva translation of 1557, it was translated hardness. The Latin, he says, understood it as obtuseness, moral obtuseness, which isn't the same as hardness, so it was taken as blindness rather than stubborn. So many people have followed that, and that is... Um, that has caused a problem. Now Harold Honer, who was a head of the Greek Department at Dallas Seminary when I was there, has written an outstanding commentary on Ephesians, and he said the word conveys this idea of a callus that serves as mortar to reunite the surfaces of fractured bones, or a pus which comes out of the bone and produces a callus. In Job 17:7, 7, it refers to the eyes growing dim. So that's part of that Old Testament is why they think of it as blindness. Now, in Scripture, we have this illustration that's used that the problem of fallen man is a spiritual blindness. And so we have to understand just exactly how these metaphors are used. Man is blind or man is dead. So if he's blind, he can't ever see anything. So how can he respond to anything? And if he is dead, he can't hear or see or taste or touch. So we got a problem here with these metaphors, and sometimes they're pressed too far. So, the phys- this idea of physically being, uh, that physically blind are often used in scripture as an illustration of the spiritually dead. In the Gospels, Jesus as a Messiah often healed the blind, thus showing physically that he was God, and he could solve the physical problem of blindness so that he could solve the spiritual problem of blindness. Uh, there were those in the Jewish world at that time that committed uh, that performed false miracles, but the Jews understood that there were two miracles that were definitive signs of the Messiah and that is the healing of a leper and giving sight to someone who had been blind from birth. And this is what Jesus demonstrated in John chapter 9. He said, we read there, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because their idea was that if you had a problem such you're born with a defect, then that was either your parents' fault or your fault, that any problems were the result of some kind of divine discipline and was the problem of, uh, uh, of your own making. Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work." As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And to demonstrate that, he then reached down, grabbed some dirt, spit in it, made a little mud pie, put it on the guy's eyes, and and they were healed. And that amazed everyone. Of course, it upset the Pharisees because this was clearly a messianic uh, miracle. Now, that's the theological issue of, uh, I mean, the, the lexical issue of blindness. But there's a theological problem with how blindness has been handled. And this brings us up to the problem that is found in uh, five-point or even four-point Calvinism. Charles Hodge was a famous, well-known theologian, reformed Calvinist theologian taught at Princeton Seminary in the mid-19th century. And when he was describing the nature of fallen man, he said, this want of power of spiritual discernment arises from the corruption of our whole nature by which the reason or understanding is blinded and the taste and feelings are perverted. So for him, this is a constitutional defect and fallen man can't see anything or respond to any kind of revelation now this is what is known as irresistible grace that is the I in the acronym TULIP coming out of the Protestant Reformation you had your major uh, streams of the Reformation you had the Lutheran Reformation uh, that were the followers of Martin Luther in, in Germany then in uh, France and in French uh, Switzerland, you had those who were primarily impacted by the teaching and the theology of John Calvin uh, and his ministry out of Geneva. By the time you get to the second to third generation of his followers, their theology had somewhat hardened are petrified, and you got into this big theological controversy in Holland in the early 1600s, about the same time that the pilgrims were there and living there just before they left to come to America, and this is known as the Arminian Calvinist-Arminian Controversy. And the Arminians were followers of a theologian who had been a very strong Calvinist, but he began to have some questions about their theology. And his name was James R. Jacobus Arminius. So he put forth, or his followers, because he had died by, before all of this really bubbled to the surface his followers made five assertions about their beliefs in the area of salvation. And in response to those five assertions, the Calvinists came up with their five, and that's remembered by the acronym TULIP. Now, the, Someone who, has, who was quite creative came along and said, well, here's the controversy over flower theology. You have daisy theology for the Arminians. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Because in Arminian theology, you could lose your salvation, get it back the next day, lose it again. That's kind of an exaggeration, but uh, that's the daisy theology of Arminianism. This is tulip. The T is really for total inability, though some will say total depravity. The U is for unconditional election. These all flow logically together. If you are totally unable to respond to God's revelation or to the gospel because you're spiritually dead and blind, then how is God going to save anyone? Well, he is going to choose who is going to be saved and who will not. In more extreme forms, you would have double predestination. But in unconditional election, God is not choosing who will be saved on the basis of any condition. Uh, He is going to choose them. He has chosen them. They would say from eternity past. The L is for limited atonement. Christ didn't die for the non-elect. He only dies. He only died for the elect. So if you're totally unable to respond, then God is going to regenerate those who are elect and they will then respond in faith. So regeneration precedes faith and they are the ones for whom Christ died. Uh, They will be irresistibly drawn to the gospel by the Holy Spirit. This means they they can't resist, They, they can't say no. Uh, those who are elect will be irresistibly drawn to the gospel. They will re- are the ones who will respond in faith. And if they are the elect, they will persevere to the end in their spiritual growth. And if they don't, well, they weren't really part of the elect. So that's just a flyover of uh, five-point Calvinism. Now regarding this, the eye in tulip is what we're talking about here to understand what the Scripture teaches about the importance of human responsibility and human volition. In their book, The Five Points of Calvinism, David Steele, Curtis Thomas, and Roger Nicole, all well-known Calvinist theologians, write, "...because men are by nature dead in sin and under its power, they are of themselves unable and unwilling to forsake their evil ways." and to turn to Christ for mercy. Consequently, the unregenerate will not respond to the gospel call to repentance and faith. No amount of external threatenings or promises will cause blind, deaf, deaf, dead, rebellious sinners to bow before Christ as Lord and to look to him alone for salvation. They go on to say, Therefore, the Holy Spirit, in order to bring God's elect to salvation extends to them a special inward call in addition to the outward call contained in the gospel message. So in the proclamation of a gospel by the evangelist, those who are the elect will feel this inward call and they will respond, but the others will not. They go on to say, through this special call, the Holy Spirit performs a work of grace within the sinner which inevitably brings him to faith in Christ. It's irresistible. That's what's called irresistible or efficacious grace. He goes on to say, In the spiritual realm he is given the seeing eye and the hearing ear. The spirit creates within him a new heart or a new nature. This is accomplished through regeneration or the new birth by which the sinner is made a child of God and is given a spiritual life. So did you read anything in there about faith other than the fact that the special call uh, brings him to faith in Christ? But that's after this interchange has taken place. So in addition to this outward call or presentation of the gospel, there's this inward call. This is explained in the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you grew up in a Presbyterian church, you probably had to memorize this when you went through catechism. The doctrine of irresistible or efficacious grace. Now, some of you have heard the term efficacious grace used in another way, but it is defined historically here. This is what it means, okay, in these documents. Uh, The doctrine of irresistible or efficacious grace is set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith in the following words. All those whom God hath predestined unto life and those only, He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Notice, all of that happens before they believe, Uh, yet, um, yet they come freely, being made willing by his grace. So, What they're basically saying is blindness is a constitutional defect that is spiritually blind and spiritually dead people cannot see, hear, or believe the gospel because of the fall, because of total inability. God will irresistibly draw the elect, giving them saving faith, and uh, they will necessarily persevere as evidence of their salvation. problem is you have passages like John 5, 25, where Jesus says... Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. seems pretty clear that Jesus says that the dead can hear, so you can't push dead and blind to cover all of the things that the Calvinist is trying to make make it cover and as I, as I've pointed out, it is this verse verse eighteen that defines what spiritual death is, that we're alienated from the life of God. Now, one passage that I want to look at here, briefly we'll come back to it later, is Romans 1, 20 and 21, where Paul tells us that since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen. That's a blind person, can clearly see the invisible attributes of God through his creation. They are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile that 's the same word that 's used in our passage in Ephesians chapter four, verse seventeen. Uh, futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts are darkened. Those two words are both used in ephesians five seventeen and also the, the their thoughts. so sin has an impact on the thinking of the unbeliever, but not in such a way that he cannot come to know that God exists, even in with nonverbal or what is called natural revelation, that is, through God's works. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the ferment shows forth his handiwork. And Romans uh, 119, uh, 119 uh, through 21 clearly states that through his creation, his invisible attributes are seen so that they know God from an external witness and they know him internally it is made clear within them so as we look at those those verses there are four points first of all they know God through the nonverbal revelation and evidence of creation the universe all that they see bears God's copyright you can't look at anything that doesn't scream at our soul that it's created by God. Now, they reject that. So they, but the, what the text says is that they know God and uh, they're responsible for not glorifying Him. They are without excuse. Third point is the result of their rejection of the evidence externally and internally, their souls are darkened or blacked out because they refuse to be enlightened. And what the text says is that they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Fourth point is this is a historical description of the progression of human depravity and the divine punishment which comes. We'll come back to Romans 1 a little bit later. So this is the point. Now let's look at a few key passages. As we go forward to see what Scripture indicates, does this indicate that man has a constitutional problem so that he cannot at all understand the gospel or the uh, the existence of God and respond, at least with positive volition? I'm not denying the role of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that at the very end. Matthew 13:19. Now, I'm going to look at three parallel passages here that are part of the parable of the sower. What's important here, there are a lot of details here I'm not going to touch on. What's important is to observe the response of Satan, not mentioned in all of the passages. When any Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he says, when anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. So this is, this is the first one. Now what we see here is that he hears the message. He understands the message. But then the wicked one comes along, that is Satan, and, and steals it. Now when does this happen? Let's look at the next, the parallel in Mark 4.15. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, not later, not tomorrow, not the next day, not in six months, when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Why is he so quick to take the word away from those who don't understand? They're responding negatively. Well, that's in the third passage, Luke 8, 12. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil, now in Mark said it's immediate. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts. Why does he do that? Left. Now, that's a really important word because it's going to point out an exception. It's a good translation in English but the Greek, I'm going to, I've got the Greek translated here, it is the word hina, which means in order that it introduces a purpose clause, and then that is joined to a negative, so that if I translated it literally, it would read, in order that they should not believe and be saved. So if they are constitutionally incapable of even responding in positive volition to the hearing of the gospel message, why does Satan need to immediately pluck it out of their mind? He does so so they won't respond and be saved. He, he wouldn't have to do that if they were constitutionally blind and unable to respond. Now, we see this same thing when we look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 4. In this passage, we have another last. It's almost identical in the Greek. It's a little different, but it's the same, same idea. Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we being the apostles, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced The hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, verses 3 and 4 are very interesting. He talks about the fact that the gospel is veiled. Now, if you are standing up and you want to, let's say, put on a blindfold instead of a veil because you want to have darkness... Then you put the blindfold on, but you can still see, can't you? The blindfold or the veil is external to the eyes. The problem is not that the eyes are blind, unable to see, but that there's something that is put there that veils the eyes. Now, who puts that there? It is the God of this age. It is Satan. It is not that they are constitutionally blind and incapable of understanding the gospel. And so the point that I'm making is simple. If, if man is unable to understand the gospel or unable to even express a desire to know God or to find out about how he can know God better, if he can't even do that, why does Satan need to put a veil over his eyes? He can just sit back and rest because they've got this constitutional defect. So what this tells us is that Satan uses various things, philosophies, religions, various other uh, tools to veil the eyes of those who might respond to the gospel. Verse 4 says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded via the, the veil, lest, that is, for the purpose that the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God, uh, should not shine on them. Now, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears, it is a blinding light that pierces that veil, so that the blindness that is caused by the veil of the legalism of the Pharisees is pierced by the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, when when that happens, Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads of the prodding. So this is tells us that we have a way to respond, but we can't save ourselves. It is non-meritorious. The merit is in what Christ did on the cross. It's not in and of ourselves. But let's go look at one more passage, and that's Romans 1, 18 to 21 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is descriptive of those who reject this external revelation of God through his creation. Verse 19 says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. See, they know God exists. They're not constitutionally unable to grasp the concept but they reject it. They suppress it in unrighteousness. They have the volitional ability to respond, to desire to know more or not, and they historically suppress that truth in unrighteousness. What often happens is those who are, as Paul put it, uh, being—you have the goads pricking, as the as uh, he sa- as the Lord says to Paul. And what does that do? It makes people angry. Paul was so angry about the gospel that he was killing Christians. And there are a lot of people who reject the gospel and they hate Christians. They hate Christianity and they're mad about it. That doesn't mean they won't ever be saved, but it does mean that there's great hostility in reaction to the gospel that we should pay attention to. So we see that they know God. It's manifest in them because God has shown it to them. So there's an external witness and an internal witness that is true for every single human being. Let's go to one more passage. In John chapter 6. I'm not going to take time to go through and set all of the context of John chapter 6. This is an important passage, but I just want to focus on the two most important verses that are pulled out. These are the the verses that are uh, at the very core of this doctrine of irresistible grace. Verse 44 is the verse that's usually cited as the proof text, not verse 45. Verse 44, says, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so they will go to this particular passage and say, See, uh, this word that is translated draw is the word ekluo, and this has the idea of uh, uh, pulling somebody against their will. And it is used that way. But that's not the core meaning of the word. It simply means to drag something from one location to another. For example, in Acts 16:19, these are the three verses that are usually uh, cited, that Paul and Silas are arrested and they are dragged into the marketplace by the authorities. They're dragged against their will. See, that's what drawing means. God is going to draw you against your will. Acts 21.30, talking about seizing Paul again, and the Romans arrested him and dragged him out of the temple, they dragged him against his will. James 2.6, you have dishonored the poor man. Do, uh, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. Let's say, see, in these examples, it's always against their will. Well, against their will is not the point of any of these passages, number one. Number two, it, if it is part of the meaning, it's a secondary meaning in these, that's made clear from these, from these contexts. But it's also a word that is used by John, the writer of, who is recording the what Jesus said in John chapter 6, and it's used again in John 21. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples on a beach on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples had been out uh, fishing all night, and they came up with nothing. And so Jesus appeared, and they weren't sure who he was, and he said, just cast your nets on the other side and when they did they brought in uh, more than they could than the nets could handle and so this is verse 6 Jesus said cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some so they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish fish it was not a resistance of the will it was only because of the situation of the water in the boat and leverage they didn't have enough enough lead leverage to pull them all in because a little while later once the boat has come to the beach peter goes to the boat and he drags the net to land so it doesn't mean that it's it doesn't indicate an inability to do something it, or that you are dragged against your will. It just simply, you're moved from one thing to another. So when we look at John 6.44, I'm going to go back to this slide, it's followed by another verse. John 6.45 says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. And this is a quote that comes from Isaiah fifty four thirteen. The quote from Isaiah sixty four uh, excuse me, John fifty four Isaiah fifty four thirteen is all your children shall be taught by the Lord. It's a millennial reference, looking to the future that they will be taught by the Lord. And then it says, and great shall be the peace. Of your children, this explains the answer to the question of how does the Father draw people? They are taught by the lord it is it is through the scripture, and so Jesus builds on this um, on this quotation from isaiah fifty four thirteen he says it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God." Therefore, now he's going to add to it. He says, "Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me." Notice he didn't say just heard. He said hear and learn. And in the context of John chapter six, where he has uh, fed the five thousand, uh, he's used that as an illustration of the of the of himself as the bread of life. But he talks about the fact that these are people who heard, but they didn't respond to what they heard. So now he says this, uh, uh, Isaiah 54:13 applies to those who, A, heard, and B, applied it. They learned from the Father. So those who hear and learn, what is it that draws them? It is the content of Scripture. It's the same thing that we saw earlier in God's commission of the Apostle Paul that he would open the eyes of those who were spiritually dead. How would he do it? Through the proclamation and the preaching of the gospel. Now we'll look at one more passage to show that this is not a merely human endeavor. This is John chapter 16, and this points out the important an indispensable role of God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is working with the proclamation of the gospel to make it clear to the spiritually dead unbeliever. And so Jesus in John 16 is talking to his disciples and he's been explaining to them all through this, John 14, 15, and 16, that he's going to leave. And that he has to leave so that he can send another comforter. And that when he sends another comforter, this is going to be the the Holy Spirit. It's another comforter like him. And so in verse 7 he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will do what? He will do three things. He will convict the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, who's he convicting? He's convicting the world, not the, just the elect. He's convicting the world. This is the same phraseology you have in John 3.16 where we read, For God loved the world in this way, that is, all of the inhabitants of the earth. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's convicting them, first of all, verse 9, of sin, because they do not believe in me. He's convicting them of their unbelief, that they have not accepted Jesus as the promised and prophesied Messiah who died on the cross for their sins, of righteousness. Why righteousness? Because they don't have righteousness. We're born unrighteous. We're spiritually dead, and the only way we can become righteous is to trust in Christ and then we receive from God the imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is Genesis fifteen six, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And that was quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 4 as he is explaining how justification happens, that we are declared just not because of anything that we have done, but because we now, as a result of faith in the gospel, We receive the righteousness of Christ. Instantly, God credits us with that. As it were, we are clothed in a robe of righteousness and God looks, God's justice looks on us not as spiritually dead, corrupt sinners, but He sees the righteousness of Christ that clothes us and He declares us to be just. And then third, of judgment. Because at the cross, Satan is judged, and he is therefore condemned at that point. So he is just, as it were, out on parole until God is going to finally judge him at the end of the tribulation period. He will be cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Then he is released for a short time, and then he will lead a rebellion against God at the end of Revelation chapter 20, and then God will destroy all of those who follow Satan in that rebellion, and then he will bring the close to history, and there will be the great white throne judgment. And so when we look at all of this, we realize that man in and of himself cannot save himself. We can do nothing that brings us uh, any kind of value, any kind of approbation from God. Christ is the one who did the work. Christ is the one who paid the penalty for our sins, so that by trusting him and him alone, we have eternal life. But we have the ability to respond to the revelation that God has given to us, and that's Romans chapter 1, to know that God exists, and then secondly, we respond to uh, the, the explanation of the gospel because... God the Holy Spirit is going to make the gospel clear to us to help our understanding so that we have a clear understanding of the gospel. But the negative of that is if if we are rejecting it, immediately you have Satan uh, snatching it out of our minds so that we don't have uh, more of a chance to respond. Now we may hear the gospel at other times, and the same thing happens. But Satan is trying to blind us to keep us from res- responding, and he does that through the various philosophies and religions and rationales that somehow are used by our minds to justify our suppression of truth, which is Romans Romans one eighteen. So the issue for every person is when you hear the gospel is to respond by trusting in Christ as Savior. And at that instant, we're declared righteous. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration, which comes after we trust in Christ as Savior, just a microsecond after we are instantly regenerated and made new creatures in Christ, and we are entered into the body of Christ, the church, and we have everlasting life. That is the gospel. It doesn't have anything to do with how we feel. It doesn't have anything to do with what church we go to. It doesn't have anything to do with what we've done or haven't done. It has everything to do with what Christ did on the cross. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to understand some of the dynamics that you have revealed in your word about how we uh, can respond to the gospel, but also showing that there is a greater invisible war that goes on as Satan seeks to blind us, Satan seeks to veil the truth, Satan seeks to pluck it out of our minds so that we do not respond to the gospel. But there is something, a shadow of an ability where we can respond to the nonverbal revelation of your creation and we can respond to the gospel. And yet it is God the Holy Spirit who then makes that uh, salvation possible as we put our faith in Christ. It's not something that is meritorious. It's not a different kind of faith. It is the the object of faith that has all of the merit, Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray for anyone here, anyone who's listening online, anyone who listens at some future date, that this will become clear to them, that God the Holy Spirit would make clear what the issues are for eternal salvation. And it has nothing to do with our works, our efforts, our background, our sins. It has everything to do only with trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.